So we just read the first two verses here, but we're gonna we're gonna kind of take um, sort of an overview of the of the thirteenth chapter today. Like I said on Wednesday evening, we're gonna attempt to get through chapters thirteen and fourteen. They're they're very much connected, so we want to try to keep the continuity. But um, although we just read the two verses, I want to expand our uh, time this morning to kind of look, at least in the sense of an overview, at the entire 13th chapter. And let me say this, that the chapter 13 of Revelation is to me one of the most fascinating chapters in all the Bible. I mean, it's just in some ways, it's, it's mind-boggling, the, the things that we are told here. It's in some senses, it's, it's almost inconceivable to think that this is where the world is headed. But I think that as we look at what it says and as we just kind of do a, a survey of where the world is today, I think we're gonna see that uh, once again, uh, the Bible proves itself over and over again to be uh, you know, spot on in, in regard to what it's saying and the time frame for the things that it's talking about. We're, in so many ways, we are at, at the threshold of the things that are being mentioned here. And so that's gonna be our uh, approach as we come to this 13th chapter. As I said, it's a fascinating chapter. And just, just a quick overview is basically that uh, in the days immediately preceding the return of Jesus Christ, uh, there will be a uh, worldwide dictatorship that is established. It, it will encompass the entire planet and every person dwelling on the earth. It's going to be, as I said, a dictatorship. It's going to be led by a particular individual. And we'll see that in a moment. And, and connected with it, is going to be a religion, a worldwide religion that essentially is the worship of this ruler, this, this dictator. So that's kind of the, the gist of the 13th chapter. But then also here in this 13th chapter, there are things that are inferred here that require advances in technology that previous generations had no means of even imagining, let alone seeing, uh, you know, brought to pass uh, in their days. So it's, it's interesting because, of course, the Bible is, in many senses, it's an ancient book, but yet we're gonna see it is completely up to date. It is completely current. It is completely relevant. And it spoke of things all the way back then that really could not have been uh, implemented until the advances in knowledge that have occurred uh, would occur. So it's, it's fascinating in the sense that you have uh, this, this combination of ancient and, and very current at the same time. So with that as just sort of the background, let's look at what we have here. And John, 
he says that he's standing on the sand of the sea and he sees a beast rising up out of the sea. A beast rising up out of the sea. Now, of course, he describes the beast and it's very, uh, the description is identical to the description in chapter 12 of the dragon. So there is immediately a connection that is made between the two. But when John says he saw a beast rise up out of the sea, generally uh, the sea in the Bible and in the book of Revelation is a reference to the Mediterranean Sea. And oftentimes the, the sea is a, a metaphor for the nations collectively. So you think of Israel as, as the land and sort of in the midst of the sea, all of the surrounding nations would be symbolized by the sea where Israel was uh, referred to as the land. So he sees the beast rising up from the Gentile nations. Now, what he's talking about here in this first beast, and we're gonna see as we go along that there are, there's, there are actually two beasts that are spoken of here in this 13th chapter. But the first beast, this is the person that we commonly uh, refer to as the Antichrist. But we're gonna see in a moment that there, there are actually two Antichrists, that sometimes we, we miss that, but that's the reality. But the first one comes forth or, or rises to power out of the Gentile nations. Now, in the ninth chapter of Daniel, in the uh, 26th verse, I've shared this passage before, but let me read it to you again. In the 26th verse, it says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And then it goes on to talk about this prince and how the prince is going to make a covenant with the, the Jewish nation for, for one week. And in the midst of that week, he's going to break the covenant. So the connection here with the beast is that the beast rising up out of the Gentile nations, he rises up out of what is the, the revived Roman Empire. Now, for many years, there was the idea, and it's still held by some, the idea that there would be a, a revived Roman Empire and the Antichrist, the first beast, would come forth from that. Now, that was very uh, dominant in the thinking of prophecy teachers back in the, the 70s and the 80s and even partway through the 90s. But as it is often the case, when the world scene changes, sometimes people go back and reevaluate their prophetic perspective on things and then they sometimes uh, adjust their views. And I'm saying all of that because of this. Uh, there, there is a current thought among some that the idea that there was gonna be a revived Roman Empire and that the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile who's gonna rise up out of that, that's been replaced in the thinking of some people by uh, the idea that there's going, uh, that the whole thing with the, the Antichrist and so forth is going to have uh, an Islamic root to it. And of course, that's thought because of the 
uh, growing uh, dominance in many parts of the world of Islam. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case. I personally reject that. I think we need to keep going back to the idea that there's a revived Roman Empire, so it's European in its base because that's where Rome was based. It's a Mediterranean Empire, but the, but the base is European. And Daniel 9.26 tells us that the prince who is to come, who is the same person as the beast we're reading about here, that the people of the prince destroy the city and the sanctuary. So this is what we know historically. We know that the Romans destroyed the city and the sanctuary in 70 AD. So the beast that's coming, who's referred to as the prince here, is going to rise up out of what was formerly the Roman Empire. Daniel and the book of Revelation both teach us that Rome has two phases. Its first phase was in full swing when the Messiah came the first time, and its second phase will be in full swing when the Messiah comes the second time. So, with all of that said, that's who we're talking about here. The beast that rises up out of the Gentile nations is the future emperor, if you will, of the future revived Roman Empire. Now, as we read on here, a couple of things that I want you to note. Notice that the beast described here, uh, he says, now, the beast I saw was like a leopard, his feet like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, now we know who the dragon is from our previous study. The dragon is none other than Satan himself. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So this person that's coming in the future is going to be given Satan's throne, his power and great authority. That is uh, astounding, really, to think about it. So uh, all of the, the power of darkness is going to be invested in this one person. Now, as you look at this, you see that the, the person here, the beast, is a human being on the one hand, but there, there's also a, a spirit that is possessing the person because the beast comes up out of the bottomless pit. And so what we have here is a, a person who is fully given over to Satan, fully possessed by the devil. That's the picture that we have here. And so the dragon gives him his throne. And then uh, a very fascinating thing here, verse three, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? Now, this, this is difficult stuff. This is not easy to understand, you know, exactly what, what's being referred to here. Now, some people look at this and see that there is uh, an, an assassination attempt on this future Antichrist 
and he apparently receives a mortal wound, but then he re recovers from it. And some see in that kind of a, a parallel to Christ. Remember, the Antichrist is a false Christ. He's, the, he's instead of Christ. And so some see it as uh, just as Jesus has a death and a resurrection. So here is a, a false death and resurrection. So some see it that way. Others say, no, no, that's, that's not what it is. Uh, the beast here is, is referring to the empire, not to the individual. And so with the, the mortal wound, that's when, uh, that's when the Roman Empire seemingly died, but then the empire is going to come back in the future. That will be the, the mortal wound that's healed. That will be the resurrection. So the question is, which one is it? And the answer is, who knows? I don't know. But I think, I personally think it's the individual rather than the empire because it, the, the way it's speaking, it's speaking of, 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 of the person here rather than, I think, the empire. But think about this for a moment. So we're talking about this, this future world ruler that's going to come, and there's going to be an, an attempt to assassinate him, apparently. He's going to receive a mortal wound, but, he, but he's going to be healed. And everybody's going to understand that all of this is connected to the dragon who is Satan, and the whole world is going to worship the dragon who gives power to the beast. Now, this is the thing to me that is absolutely astounding, that the world is going to worship the devil knowingly, blatantly, not indirectly as the world has worshiped the devil. You know, all false religion has its roots in the devil. And multitudes of people throughout every single generation have worshiped the devil through false religion, but they've done it indirectly. They haven't necessarily thought of themselves as worshiping the devil. They've been, they've, they've been thinking they're worshiping God but they've been deceived. But we're talking about a worldwide worship of the devil where everybody understands that that's who they're worshiping. It is blatant satanic worship. That is where this is all headed. And so when you look at that, it just becomes absolutely astounding. And so the question then is, after there is this whatever it is that takes place, this seeming resurrection, this, this healing, this restoration, the question is, who is like the beast and who is able to make war with him? So he seems to be now invincible, unconquerable. And so the world is now uh, following after and worshiping. And so then it goes on to, to tell us a little bit more about him. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's the three and a half year period that we've been uh, seeing mentioned here. Uh, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. 
He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So more detail there that we will save uh, for Wednesday night. So come on out and we'll get the details for that. But now we move to another beast. And this is something that we need to understand because I don't think that we, we do understand this generally. We talk about the Antichrist singular. The Bible actually teaches that there are two Antichrists. So there's not just one person that's coming. There are two that are coming and they are working in unison with the devil himself. And now it's the second one that we're told about here. And notice what it says in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. So the same authority, the same power as the first beast. And he, the second beast, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even or that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And now look at verse 15. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So the second beast. Now, as we saw, the first beast rises up out of the sea, out of the Gentile nations, the revived Roman Empire. But notice, the second beast comes forth out of the earth or the land. The land, most of the time, and I think here specifically, is a reference to the land of Israel. The second beast rises up from out of the nation of Israel itself. And in actuality, the Antichrist is really more the second beast than the first. You see, the first beast is primarily a political ruler, although there are obviously spiritual overtones to all of that. But the second beast is specifically a spiritual ruler. And if we understand that there are two beasts, we understand that one is a Gentile, the other rises up out of the Jewish nation. This helps us to make sense out of some of the prophetic passages that have been a bit uh, perplexing. And I want to show you that in, in just a second. But notice here, uh, he has uh, horns like a lamb, so looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. So we've heard of the wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, this is the dragon in sheep's clothing. This is the, the devil who appears to be um, a, a prophet. And later, the book of Revelation is going to specifically refer to the second beast as the false prophet. So he becomes known from this point forward as the false prophet. 
And, and all the way through the rest of the book of, Re of Revelation, you have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. But they're both designated as beast. And remember, these are ferocious beasts, and that's because what they do is they destroy. That's their ultimate goal <coughs> and objective. But as we look at this uh, false prophet, he exercises all the authority of the first beast. He causes all to worship, and he does so by the performance of miracles. And it's mentioned here that he has power to shut up heaven. Remember, the two witnesses had that same power, but they were, uh, they're, they're gone from the scene. They were there the first three and a half years. This is the second three and a half years. And, uh, but Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when he's talking about the same thing there, he talks about the son of perdition. And that's his, that's his term for the beast. And he talks about, um, there in the context, <coughs> he's talking about how uh, there's in the temple, uh, he will go into the temple of God, he will show himself to be God, he will demand to be worshiped as God. And Paul uses these terms, with all power and signs and lying wonders. So the way that the second beast is going to uh, move the people of the world to worship the first beast is through these lying wonders, these miraculous uh, powers that he is going to have the ability to exercise, a power even to grant life to the image that is going to be made. Now, this is where it just gets absolutely, you know, just weird, just bizarre. But as we're going to see in a few minutes, it's as, as much as, you know, 50 years ago and, and anywhere beyond that, this just seemed like pure science fiction. You know, we are living in a time where all of this stuff is becoming more and more uh, you, you can see it now. You can see the potential for it. And we'll get to that in a moment. But let's go back to just this understanding of the false prophet. So like I said, we mistakenly speak of the Antichrist singular. We have to understand there are two. Now, the first one, as I said, is primarily a political leader. The second one is primarily a spiritual leader one of them is a Gentile, the other is a Jew. And this is where the confusion is cleared up. The book of Revelation uh, clears up uh, some things that are said earlier back in the Old Testament that have led to some confusion. Now, I don't know how versed you are in prophecy, how much you've studied this over the years, but if you've, if you've studied prophecy, you'll know this, that people have often wondered about the possibility of the Antichrist. I mean, on the one hand, understanding that, you know, he somehow comes out of Europe, out of the revived Roman Empire, but then uh, there, there are certain passages that seem to indicate that he might have a Jewish background. You know, what, how, how do you reconcile these things? Well, here's how it's reconciled. It's the book of Revelation that lets us know that there are two of them. You see, the Old Testament didn't we, that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Just like the, the first and the second coming of Jesus were not clear in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you had the, the Messiah is coming. 
and you had most of the passages about the Messiah that spoke of his glorious kingdom, sitting upon the throne of David and so forth. But then you had these other passages that referred to suffering and, and death and things like that. So this caused uh, confusion and an inability to really you know, specifically understand, you know, how is the Messiah gonna somehow suffer and die but yet rule and reign? Well, what wasn't made clear is that there are two comings to the Messiah. And likewise, with this subject that we're dealing with here, the Old Testament seemed to speak of, be speaking of just one person, but there were conflicting things. It's cleared up in the book of Revelation that there are actually two people involved here. Now, in Daniel chapters 7, 8, 9, and 11, that's where we find the primary Old Testament prophecies on this person. We'll use the singular for a moment on this person. But, but actually, it's these two people. But it wasn't clarified in Daniel. It's clarified for us now in Revelation. In Daniel 7, 8, and 9, the focus is on the, the Gentile leader, the first beast. That's the focus of, of the prophecy in 7, the prophecy in 8, and the prophecy in 9. But when you come to the prophecy in chapter 11, which seems to be speaking of the same person, but this is where the confusion comes in because it seems like there's a Jewish component here. This is where we actually have the prophecy of the second beast, the false prophet. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through 39. It says, then the king, so this is a reference to the second beast, the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. Now listen to this. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers. Right there. That's where people stop saying, wait, what a second, the god of his fathers. That is a, that is a term that's used over and over in the Old Testament to speak of the god of Israel. But then he adds this, nor the desire of women. Now, some people have actually thought because of this reference, nor the desire of women, some people have speculated that the end to Christ is going to be a homosexual. But that's not what it's talking about. The desire of women was a term that was used among the Jews to refer to the Messiah. The Messiah, every woman wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. So the idea the desire of women that was a messianic term. So what is it saying about this person? It's saying that he will not regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, speaking of the Messiah, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place, he shall honor a God of fortresses, a, and a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things, Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, now listen to this, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So you see, it's the second beast that's being referred to here. He's not going to worship the God of his fathers. He is going to be 
the false prophet. See, because here's the question that people would ask. They would ask, well, okay, if the, if the Antichrist is going to be a Gentile coming out of the Gentile nations, how in the world are the Jews going to embrace him as the Messiah? They're not initially. They're going to embrace this one as the Messiah, the false prophet. You see, Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. This is the false prophet. And notice what it says about him, that he will advance the glory of this other God. And that's exactly what we read about here in the text. He's the one who tells all those who dwell on the earth to make an image to worship the beast. He's the one who leads in all of this. So all of that to say, we have two antichrists. And this second one is more specifically the Antichrist because he becomes the false Messiah for the Jews. And as I said, Daniel speaks about this, but there's an interesting passage in Zechariah that speaks of this as well. And we'll look at that Wednesday night. But the passage in Zechariah uh, seems to also support the idea that there is a, a death attempt on this person who... Uh, Zechariah refers to as the foolish shepherd. And so we're going to get all of that when we get to Wednesday night. But one final thing we want to look at here, and that is verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one can buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here it is. It's the mark of the beast. How many times have we heard references to that? And, you know, for some people, it's just a, a pure mystery. For some people, it's uh, ridiculous that such a thing could even be proposed. For others, it utterly... Uh, strikes terror into their hearts. Uh, they, they live life worrying about maybe they've received the mark of the beast. Maybe, you know, they inadvertently got it when they got their new credit card with a chip in it instead of uh, all kinds of anxiety that people have had over the mark of the beast. But listen, we don't need to have anxiety over it because the church is not appointed to wrath. The church, God's people, will, will be delivered from this time. And I, I often tell people, I've, I've spoken to people over the years who have been in great anxiety over whether or not they've received the mark of the beast because of you know, some of the different things that have happened with technology and with commerce and you know, credit cards and uh, these kinds of things. And just say, look, no, it, don't worry about it. No, you haven't. It's a very specific thing. It's not something that you're going to accidentally or inadvertently have happen to you. As we look at the, the text itself, it, it makes it clear that everyone who receives the mark of the beast does so intentionally and fully knowing what they're doing. That's the crazy thing about it. It's blatant, as I said earlier, blatant satanic worship. Now, but notice here real quickly that 
It's connected with buying and selling. You can't buy or sell a single thing without this mark in the future. I talked to a man this morning. He said, he wanted to tell me about an experience he had the other day. He said he went to the uh, ATM or whatever. He tried to use his card or he tried to pay for his card, uh, something with his, his card, and it wouldn't work. So he calls up the company, and he said the woman on the other end, he said she was kind of condescending, but she said, oh, sir, of course your card doesn't work. It doesn't have the chip. And uh, that card is worthless. You, you're going to have to get a new card with a, with a chip in it. And he said, you know, to him, he said, not only was it kind of startling to hear about the necessity of having the chip, he said, but the other part of it was just how the person treated him like he was so out of touch with reality. <laughs> of course your card doesn't work. You can't buy or sell anything without the chip. Now the chip, we'll talk about that in a moment. But one other thing here, and this is, again, I, I said this in the beginning, but implied in the statement is the technological ability to make this happen. I mean, it just says it clearly. Everybody is going to receive this mark, everybody in the world. Now, like I said, 50 years ago and anywhere beyond 50 years ago, this was so perplexing to Bible teachers, most of them said, okay, this can't be literal. There's no way it could be literal because there's no way this can happen. It's got to be figurative. It's got to be symbolic. It's got to mean something other than what it says. Well, today we don't have to struggle with that any longer because the technology is not only here, it's uh, advanced well beyond that. But one last thing on the mark of the beast understand this, the mark that people receive that they cannot buy or sell without is a sign, it's an indicator that the person is a worshiper of the beast. That's what the sign indicates. It's not just a thing that uh, is connected to the new economy, uh, the new way of doing business. It is directly connected back to the worship of the beast. So, real quickly as we close, the current landscape. As I've said, going through Revelation, what we're doing is we're looking at what the book says and we're asking the question, are there things around us in the world today that indicate that we're moving in the direction? And of course, in each and every situation, we've been able to answer in the affirmative, yes, there are. And so likewise with this, as we look at the world today, as we look at the current landscape, as we look at the current landscape politically, there is, a, there is a massive worldwide leadership vacuum. The world is longing for a leader. Now, you know, just from the, the standpoint of uh, geopolitics for decades and decades, uh, the United States has been looked at as a sort of a world leader. And most of the nations of the world, some happily and others not so happily, have, have just sort of looked at the U.S. as, you know, the, this is where we get sort of some guidance from or wisdom or, or assistance or help or whatever. Um, but, you know, that has evaporated pretty quickly under the, the current administration, and I think uh, very much intentionally. So today, we have a political vacuum around the world. We have mass confusion. 
all around the world. We have terrorist attacks every single day in different parts of the world. And we have no real uh, leadership to speak of. Uh, the Western leaders, you know, Brussels, Paris, places like that, even in the U.S., are pretty much saying, well, you know, this is the new normal. This is just what you got to get used to. This is just the way it's going to be now. I read an article the other day, you know, is it, the question was, is it safe to travel in Europe? Yes. Oh, thank you. Really? Why is it any safer than it was two weeks ago? It's wishful hoping. But the point is, uh, there's, there's a massive um, vacuum. So what does that tell us? It tells us that somebody's going to step into that vacuum at some point. There's, there's going to be somebody, the, as the world goes on and on, uh, sinking into this, uh, this pit of despair and so forth, uh, there, there's going to be more and more a desire for someone to take the reins, for someone to lead, for someone to show us the way out of this. So we see that politically, uh, the, the climate is right for a person like this. Economically, we see the same thing. We see that the world is uh, becoming, in a, in a lot of ways, practically speaking, it's, it's a different world economically than it's been in previous generations. You know, they say that our, my grandchildren, for example, uh, especially my younger grandchildren, will probably not, at a certain point, they won't even know what money is. They won't even know what cash is. All of that is being replaced by electronic uh, funds, transfers, and things like that. I remember back in the 70s and 80s, Pastor Chuck talking about all of those kinds of things. And, and I remember there was always the, the speculation about you know, how this might work itself out and what it might look like in the future and all different kinds of theories and ideas. And you know, the, the fact of the matter is we're, we're here now. We, when we were, back then, we were talking about what it might look like. Uh, we're here today. And this whole move toward uh, a cashless society, this whole move toward a one world economy, this whole move toward ultimately everybody only being able to buy and sell through one means, well, we're, we're moving in that direction. Let's just say that. But then, as I said, technologically, we have the technology. You know, we used to talk about, I mentioned the chip a minute ago in the card, and we, we heard so much about the chip. And, you know, that the, the mark of the beast is gonna be a chip put under the skin and so forth. And you know what? It's kind of like the chip is old news in one sense. The technology is advancing so quickly. What is the mark of the beast exactly going to be? We don't know exactly what it's going to be, but, we know that it's connected to buying and selling. And we already know that that technology is easily with us today. And it's just going to become more and more advanced and more and more doable as we go into the future. Isn't it crazy how rapidly things have changed in our world in such a short period of time? It's just astounding how Quickly, things have changed. There's an interesting statement in Daniel that speaks about knowledge being increased. 
And every time I think of that passage, I think, man, we, we are seeing it. We're living in the midst of it. So we have these uh, developments in these areas. And then think about this for a moment. We've got this image. We've got the, the power to give life to the image. Have you heard of biotechnology and how they're, they're trying to connect robotics and, and uh, genetics and biology and all of this stuff? It's just, it's amazing, the stuff that's happening. But it's all there. And then finally, the spiritual climate. The spiritual climate is set. And we see a world that's massively confused spiritually. We see a world that's not less spiritual. It's, it's probably more spiritual than it's been. Uh, much to the dismay of the materialist, the, the atheist, the, the cultural elite, the progressives who thought that uh, religion was going to be a thing of the past because science has replaced it. There's more religion in the world today than ever. And they're, they're frustrated by it, but that's the reality. But of course, the majority of it is false religion. And there's, there's a continued effort toward amalgamating religion. You know, we need to do away with the divisions among the religions. We need to, to set aside those contentious parts of, of the various religions and those dogmatic statements. And we need to all just kind of come together around the things that we can embrace. And that's the climate that we find ourselves in. So we know where it's headed. Revelation 13 tells us. We see that the current landscape lends itself to these kinds of things. And that leaves us with the application. And the application for us, I think, is simply this. Jesus said it himself. He said, I must work while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And you know, the, the truth of the matter is we have a limited amount of time and we don't know how much time we do have. And, and of course, on a personal level, none of us know how much time we have. We all assume that we have lots of years ahead of us to do whatever we want and to get our act together whenever we decide you know, that'll be the best time to do it. We don't know any of that. And we don't know when these other things are going to materialize in the fullest sense either. But we know that the stage is set, so to speak. And so we must work while it is day. The night is coming. And, and the stuff we're reading about is the night. It's the darkest point in human history. It's yet ahead of the world. That's the thing that's unbelievable. It's coming in the future. In the prophet, I think it's Isaiah. And, and actually, um, there's a, a man who wrote a great volume on the life of Jesus. His name was Albert Edersheim. And he wrote this back in the 1800s. And he quoted from Isaiah, and from Isaiah it said, O watchman, O watchman, what of the morning? And the watchman said, the morning comes and then the night. And this, of course, was Isaiah. The morning comes, Jesus came, the Messiah came into the world. The morning comes, but then the night and there's still a night that's coming upon the world. And so we must work while it is day. 
And we have an opportunity today to serve Christ. We have a calling to serve Christ. We have a calling to advance his kingdom. It's time to, uh, you know, set aside the things that distract us. It's time to set aside the things that hold us back. It's time to give ourselves entirely to the call of God upon our lives and what he wants to do with us and in us and through us. And we need to work while it is day. So God help us to do that in light of all the things that we read here and the things that we see transpiring around us in the world. Lord, we pray that you would help us today to realize that we are living in perilous times. Help us to realize, Lord, that we have just this brief season in which to serve you and help us to give ourselves entirely to you. Lord, I pray for any with us today that have yet to make the kind of commitment to Christ that results in a born-again experience, a new life. Lord, help them to see that the writing is upon the wall and help them to respond to your grace accordingly. So, Lord, work among us. And Lord, use us, we pray, in these days. Help us to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and help us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you that we haven't been appointed to wrath. Thank you that as we read about these things, which are frightening, to say the least, thank you, Lord, that you've promised to deliver your people. So help us, Lord, to trust you, to rest in you, but help us, Lord, to labor in the power of the Spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.